Welcome to Dating, Sex and Relationships, the DSR podcast. I'm your host, Angel Donovan. This is a show where we explore for any practical means we can find to improve our dating sex relationships. And that means with a completely open perspective, so you'll see a wide variety of people we have on the show so that we can get as close to reality and the truth as possible from an open perspective and get practical tools that are going to work for us. Please make sure you take away some action steps from today's episode, as with every single one, so that it actually does change your life. Do that as a favor to me, and then the efforts I make to get this content out to you and get these guests in front of you, it makes it all so much more worthwhile. And email me, let me know about the successes, um, even the failures. Let me know at angel at datingskillsreview.com. I always like to hear about people going out and applying this stuff. If you have been listening to the show longer than three months and your dating life hasn't significantly improved, I strongly encourage you to check out our implant program. It's designed to get you off your ass and implementing new behaviors so that you can get the kinds of results you're looking for within a few months, not years. It's not a study program as in reading. It's very simple. You watch short trainings where we give you specific actions. We give you one tool to use and we give you a mission. You go out, you do it. You take a day or a few days to do that. You come back and then we push you to the next step, the next mission. This is done in micro steps to make it absolutely easy for you to take action. This is the number one thing that we found over time that prevents people from actually getting the results in this area. It's taking action, getting things done. So we push you out of your comfort zone. This is what learning is about very slowly in micro steps and it works. It's really the culmination of what I've learned over 15 years to make this journey as simple and as fast as possible for men like you. So check it out if that applies to you. Go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash implant, I-M-P-L-A-N-T. Now, what questions are we going to look at today and answer for you? We're going to look at the most successful polyamory strategies. We've got the foremost expert in polyamory in the US today to talk about what's actually working. That means what leads to the greatest satisfaction in relationships, the healthiest relationships for us, our partners and our children in families. How do we improve our relationships with women in general? Taking these learnings from successful polyamory complex situations and applying them to monogamy also. This is one of those episodes for people also like me who aren't sure whether polyamory or monogamy is best for you. I've gone through phases of both of these over the years and I've pretty much equally enjoyed both at one time or another. Perhaps it just fits with my lifestyle in different stages of my life so it may always change. So I personally found this a really interesting episode to better understand where polyamory works according to the academic research and it's insightful episode. So for any of you that are looking at polyamory as a potential uh, approach, a lifestyle to your life. So this is a really insightful episode and it can probably help you with that decision if this is something you're thinking about also. If you're interested in having five wives or something like that, you may want to know what the legal implications of that are. Could it negatively impact our rights or cause us legal troubles down the road, depending on which state we live in or where we live in the world? So we're going to dig into that quickly also, which is good to know. 
Ultimately, this is an episode where we look at some more advanced relationship skills, navigating more complex relationships. And honestly, I think this applies to pretty much all relationships today. We can't have enough of relationship skills. They're getting more and more complex just because of the pace of social change, the pace at which we change ourselves. So to keep relationships strong and intact, we really need to be on top of our games. Today's guest is Elizabeth Chef, PhD, and she is one of the world's foremost experts on polyamorous families and one of the top experts on polyamory from academic and legal points of view in the US today. She's led a 15-year-long study on polyamorous families to understand their dynamics, and all of this is summarized in her book, The Polyamorists Next Door, Inside Multiple Partner Relationships and Families. She is a frequent writer and has her own column at Psychology Today. And to give you an idea of the kind of perspective she brings, this is from one of her recent articles there, which was entitled The Death of Compulsory Monogamy and Viewing Monogamy as Only a Social Good. And in this article, she states, quoting here, Years of research evidence indicates that monogamy can be great for some people, but truly horrific for others. It is long past time that we as a society stop pretending that monogamy is an unqualified social good and recognize that for some people and in some families, it is an abject disaster. So that's basically just saying that by default, that means unqualified, as she stated, we, ex- we just think that monogamy is the right way to go because it's kind of the default. But that's not necessarily true. And of course, we dig into tons of details in this episode. Great episode. Hope you enjoy it as much as I did. To get the show notes with the link to the guest, Elizabeth Chef's work, and everything else we talk about in this episode, plus the transcript, go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash podcast and pick the episode out there. If you want it in your email inbox, go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash newsletter, pop your email in there. And you'll receive those on auto in your email every time an episode comes out. Now let's meet Elizabeth Shep. I'm Angel Donovan, and this is the Dating Skills Podcast. This is a 14-year ongoing mission to discover the truth about what works in dating, sex, and relationships. To become a better man. Join me as I leave no stone unturned chase down every expert, role model, and mentor with insights to get us to that goal as fast as possible. This show is about bringing you the best of that information so that you can take it in and change your life for the better, step by step, episode by episode. Eli, thank you so much for joining the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Great. So what's going to be cool about today's episode is like you're coming from this different perspective than a lot of the other perspectives we've had, a very academic perspective. Could you give us some perspective on on what that is? What kind of academic work have you been doing over the last 15 years? I'm a sociologist Uh and the kind of research I do is called ethnography, meaning that I do interviews and participant observation. So I go and hang out with the people I'm studying and observe them while they have their regular lives. So with polyamory, especially because I studied families with children, that meant going to their homes and just 
hanging out with them while they made dinner and folded laundry and did the dishes and worked on homework and just kind of did very mundane family life things. Right, right. The day to day. And so you're saying observations, are you taking notes? You're like, they just did this, they just did that kind of thing. Or I just noticed that interesting thing that occurred. Right. I would take notes more in my head and then run out to my car. Oh, because it was inappropriate to make notes. (laughs) In front of them. Yeah. It just makes people more uncomfortable, I think. So I would take a little break and run out to my car and type furiously and then come back and observe some more. So how long did you hang out with them? Because I'm just wondering, like, how inhibited do you think they would be by your presence? And versus, say, if you're around for a while, they start to let go a little bit more, I think. Right, Versus if it's just like one day. I did some of this stuff for business school. Uh I hung out and the guy noticed the first couple of days he was like paying a lot of attention to me. And then afterwards, he kind of forgot I was there. Exactly. Yes. So that's when I would get the best data is when I could just blend into the background and they would just have their regular family lives, which often included a lot of scheduling. Poly people with multiple adults and multiple children have tons of scheduling to do. So that was one of the most common conversations people would have was, when are you going out on a date? Who's going to be with the kids? How much money do we have left for dating and things like that? What are the people with the kids? How much money do they have to go? Can we take the adults out to the movies and the kids to the movies at the same time? Should the kids stay home and eat macaroni and cheese? Right. So it, there's a more of an organizational overhead in the relationship, it sounds like. Absolutely. Uh, especially if you have kids, like that scenario. Many poly families have a scheduler, one person who kind of keeps a handle on everyone else's schedule and knows when people are working or out of town or whose birthday is when, things like that. Because when you have six or seven adults and eight kids or something like that, you've got a lot to keep track of. Okay. So what kind of configurations did you look at? You just mentioned six or seven adults and I'm assuming you looked at kind of a bunch of different configurations because they're not all the same. Yes. What were the typical scenarios or the range? The most common form of family I found was the open couple with children. So often it was just the two of them, often a male and a female, sometimes legally married, who had had children and they were living just the couple with their children. And they would have other lovers who would come and go all the time, come spend the night. One of the parents would go spend the night at the other lover's house. So they would have, they would appear as if they were just kind of an average couple with close friends, with people coming over all the time. Most poly families don't necessarily live together with everyone in the relationship because it just gets too complicated trying to manage so many people using the same house. So it's just easier for people to have their own space and then socialize together. That's the way most poly families work. Some certainly do live together in groups larger than two. While most people initially approach polyamory if they're already in a relationship, for some reason, there's a lot of people who approach the poly community as a male and female couple looking to add another woman. That kind of free-floating bisexual woman is so rare that she's called the unicorn. 
Oh, really? Yes. And so the people looking for her are called the unicorn hunters. And there's lots of them. And there's lots of them, especially new to the community. Often when people have been polyamorous for a long time, they stop looking for her and they go for other relationship configurations. That, that was their dream and they never fulfilled that it. That was their dream. And then they realize. That's interesting. So they must be highly prized, the unicorns. Yes, highly prized. Absolutely. Are they fought over? Like their competitive dynamics going after them? Um, to some extent, although a lot of the people looking for them don't necessarily understand the polyamorous community that much. So they'll put out in their Oh, what are the ads they put online? Like the personal ads, they'll say, oh, we're looking for a woman between 18 and 30 who must love children and be willing to move to our rural farm (laughs) in North Dakota and raise our pigs for us. Or, you know, like they have this very long list of things they want from the woman, but they don't list anything of why the woman would be interested in being with them. They just kind of put it out there, this expectation that then they'll have this line of women lining up and sending them photos and they'll be able to choose the one that appeals to them both the most. And it never, ever, ever works that way. So then they get really upset and bitch about how it's so hard to find good women. And then people who've been in the poly community for a long time say, well, you're not making yourselves appealing. Uh Put some work into your own selves. If you want someone to be interested in you, give information about why she might find you interesting. And don't expect her to come and just be with you on your terms. Be willing to date someone who's already dating someone else. Be willing to go to her place. Be willing to date a man. So I guess they're coming from, like, sometimes they have children and stuff. So they're just thinking completely from what's going to be able to fit into their life. Because as you said before, it's exactly. if you have a family, it's, it's more complex to fit this in. Absolutely. And they're just kind of like thinking, how are we going to fit this in? Right. Like, this is kind of a wish for us. But how does this kind of get started? We're talking about married couples. They just decide one day... We want a third or is this their first experience typically and this is kind of how it tends to, to start the interest or they were in the swinging community or all of those happen actually sometimes it's a couple that's been married for a long time and one of them meets someone and they accidentally all kind of develop a relationship people get into polyamory accidentally sometimes More often, it's that they decide they want to open the relationship and then go looking intently. And at least the unicorn hunters are looking for that. That works sometimes. More often, it takes a little bit of practice to figure out how to have an open relationship. A lot of people start their first open relationship with kind of a more monogamous mindset of, This is the primary partner. This is the real spouse. This is the person this relationship needs to be protected. And this other person over here, I'm just dating. And then they should, if the spouse gets uncomfortable, then the date or the girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever should really back off until the primary relationship is stable again. But Long-term polyamorous don't like that because the secondary person, the girlfriend or boyfriend who gets dismissed if things get difficult between the original couple, that gets really old for the secondaries. They don't like... It doesn't work. Unless no. unless if they're a sub, 
I don't know, did some subs put up with that kind of approach for a long time? Absolutely. And some subs really seek that. You mean submissive in terms of a power dynamic of absolutely. And in fact, there's a lot of BDSM. Do they call it that in England? BDSM? Sadomasochism? <laughs> or kink? Absolutely. I'm sure they call it lots of other things too. Okay. Well, there's a lot of that happening in the poly community. A good half of them at least. So this is something we've also talked to swingers from the lifestyle before. And there's a lot of crossover between BDSM. We talked to people about BDSM too. Swinging polyamory, all of these communities seem to tend to bump into each other a bit or cross over. I would say, at least in the U.S., and that's where I did my research, I called it the Overlapping Identities Study. Uh And I initially looked at how all of these identities come together. Polyamory, swinging, BDSM, and fetishes are what I looked at. And I found that the swingers are really much more their own group, Politically and socially, there is some overlap with polyamory, but not nearly as much as with BDSM and polyamory. There's a lot more overlap. And I also found in the study that the group of people with fetishes were not nearly separate enough to categorize them separately from the folks who do BDSM. So I lumped all of them together and there just weren't enough. There wasn't enough intersection in that specific group with swingers and BDSM and polyamory. So I focused on polyamory and BDSM was the outcome of that research. Okay. So swingers tend to stay apart from it. And they're um, much like polyamorists. They tend to be white and middle or upper middle class. And again, this is in the U.S. Different from polyamorists, the swingers tend to be more religious more politically conservative, and a lot more closeted. It's just something they do on the side for sexual variety, but not necessarily a political identity for them. So sometimes they keep it hidden. Many times, yes. And they don't involve family with it. And they don't come out to their families about it. And they don't introduce their kids. It's just a a sideline that the adults do for sexual variety. Whereas the polyamorists, when they're establishing these long-term emotionally intimate relationships, they eventually introduce their children. Not right away. Not until they're certain that this person is going to stick around and is safe. So often they will date someone for quite a while before they introduce the kids. But once that person has been fully vetted and found to be a potential lasting family member, then they get introduced to the kids more as a friend, just someone who's hanging around and not, this is your new dad or something. All the amorous are very careful about moving slowly and not willy-nilly bringing people into the family. There's a, a pretty significant, usually not only period of time, but kind of set of circumstances of looking into that person's background to make sure they're safe to be around the family. Right, right, cool. It sounds like a lot of the time they, they're treated as friends. The, I mean, which could appear to those people like they have a lower, lower status as well. I guess, Some, I guess in- yes, sometimes that is the case, especially when... They're a partner in some circumstances, but then kind of back to the secondary thing where secondary partners sometimes feel slighted, emotionally slighted. 
when they're kind of a full family member, when it's time to pay the utility bill or do the dishes or take care of the kids. But then when it's time to go to the community Christmas party or the family Thanksgiving, suddenly they're eliminated from the family. They're not a real family member. And that gets old for the secondary partners who are kind of yanked around emotionally. That does not work. Not that that is the case with all secondary partners at all. Many secondary partnerships work really well. But you were asking about some of the disadvantages of polyamorous relationships and that power differential between primary and secondary partners can be super problematic. I guess one of the divisions we have to make is because like polyamorous tends to be a a highly, it sounds like highly invested relationships. Yes. These are just like long-term relationships. Absolutely. Seems like a lot of hard work. My experience with having multiple relationships, one point I had three girlfriends um, for a time period was exhausting. Absolutely. It's a way of life I've chosen not to pursue quite a while ago, just because I got other stuff to do in my life. and. So that fits well with what you were saying about organization complexity, which I found was part of the the problem. Organizing people with their jobs and my stuff that was going on, it got complicated and it also created conflicts quite easily. Yes. For me personally, that just felt like that was too much work. (laughs) It It wasn't worth the outcome. So what tend to be the drivers of people who are interested in this? And do they have particular lifestyles? I don't know, maybe they have more... They tend to have different kinds of jobs or what kind of situations are relevant for polyamory if, if there are certain situations that make it easier? Well, I would agree that of all of the different forms of consensual non-monogamy, polyamory is definitely the hardest, the most, the highest maintenance and probably the least workable for the majority of people. Of all of them, I would say polyamory works for fewer people than like swinging, for instance, which allows the sexual variety, but keeps more of kind of a firewall between the couple and other partners where they're not hanging out emotionally all the time and they're not considering each other in their schedules. Yeah. Well, it seems like in swinging, speaking to swingers, the relationships are very fluid and dynamic. It's kind of like dating yes. for a little while and then it, the relationships just come and go. It's not anything fixed or maybe it could be Serious stuff does happen, but it's just like come and go all the time. Yes. And many swingers, in fact, have rules about not having sex repeatedly with the same other person. So you don't develop emotional intimacy. So sometimes it's only one time per person ever, sometimes no more than three. It varies by the swingers, but they seem to be able to kind of manage or navigate that constant partner turnover with just a greater emotional distance in a way that polyamorous are actually trying to cultivate emotional intimacy and really working for that long-term connection. Yeah, it seems like the objectives are actually pretty different. Polyamorous, the word says amor, right? So um, that's really the goal, whereas swinging is, is more of a sexual experience. Like when I get it, it's more about sexual activity, sexual exploration. And variety. uh, Primarily. I'm not saying that there's no communication. And of course, there's like some of the nice emotions, but it's not the focus of what's going on. So I guess I can give people at home a bit more of a perspective. If they're coming from these different perspectives today, what they're looking for, what might be more suitable. I guess the polyamorous people, have they typically been monogamous before? They haven't been more of the swinger lifestyle? Because it sounds like they don't 
tend to mix too much? I'll take the second part of that question first. They, they do mix to some degree, not as extensively as the polyamorous and the kinksters or the BDSM folks have such significant overlap. It is hard to downplay that. But the polyamorous and the swingers do have an area of overlap, enough so that Ken Haslam, who is a poly activist in the United States, came up with the name Swally to characterize that intersection between swinging and poly. Swally. Ah. Um, (laughs) So this is where you have a couple of lovers and then you do a bit of swinging as well. Yes. And sometimes with those same poly partners and sometimes with other people completely. Because it seems like some of the time they meet someone else they love and then they're like, well, what do I do? Right. And that certainly is the case for some people. It kind of depends on if they view polyamory as a sexual orientation for themselves or as a relationship style that they can choose or choose not to engage in. For the sexual orientation folks, they often have been in multiple partner relationships since they were kids. Like they'll talk about never being able to establish just one best friend, that they always have a group of friends and never just a single best friend, and that they could never envision themselves just marrying one person, even as a kid. They thought, oh no, that's not going to work for me. So these folks who monogamy has never worked for them, has never felt comfortable. Some of them have tried repeatedly to be monogamous and always end up cheating on their partners. And then they decide that's it. No more promises of monogamy. If they're not actually going to do it, they're not going to ever agree to it anymore. And so that's how they feel like they protect their own ethical center is just by saying no monogamy. For other people, polyamory is more of a lifestyle that they can choose to engage in or choose not to do. And those folks tend to have been monogamous at some point and then decided to either open that monogamous relationship and become polyamorous. Some of them start out monogamous and then either they cheat or their spouse cheats and they divorce. And then they're like, okay, that's enough of the cheating thing. They're just not going to do monogamy anymore. And some of them, just as you mentioned, meet some specific person and are like, oh, goodness, I'm in love with my husband or wife, but I've met this new person and I don't want to let go of my husband or wife. Depending on how they handle that, that can be a complete disaster. I think of that as kind of the Newt Gingrich version of open relationships. And Newt Gingrich is a very conservative politician in the United States Uh who champions family values, but has been married some outrageous six or seven times. I'm not exactly sure how many times he's been married, but one of his wives was dying of cancer. And he went in to say to her, hey, honey, I've been seeing this other person for three years. How about we have an open relationship? And she's like, you've been seeing them for three years. That doesn't count as an open relationship. That's cheating. And so much (laughs) like that, people who come to their partner and and basically confess cheating and then want to turn it into an open relationship, that is a disaster in the making. Yeah, it's a bad start. Because polyamory relies so much on trust and communication, it's very difficult to trust someone who's been lying to you for years and then suddenly be like, okay, now we're in an open relationship. Let's be straightforward about this. That just doesn't work. 
Yeah, I can see how that, that would definitely turn very, very bad. A lot of the situations I've seen is where people just keep that secret. Yeah. Obviously, that's the current model. But I have friends who got married and when they are cheating, they just keep it quiet. Um, but they don't seem to be able to do the marriage thing without without cheating. So I always wonder... Why be married? Why don't you just do polyamory? And, and I think the answer comes back is that that's not the way society lets us... They look at their jobs and they look at their lives, their friends, and it's just not the way things are done them where they are so uh, they go with the the standard model which is married and cheating or some people who are better off is just married so are there any areas where you think polyamory works better than they feel that it's working better for them and there are advantages to it versus monogamy like where the people are like this our life is better because of this you know it's better than if we we're in oh absolutely I hear a lot of different advantages, not only getting the first one the adults come up with is getting more of their needs met, because really one person can't meet every single need that other people have. That's our contemporary model of marriage, that your spouse is going to be your best friend and the best lover ever and a great co-parent and a financial planner and your companion and the polyamorous talk about by spreading those needs around, they get those needs met much better. Not only... They get the full dream person. I came up with something similar myself. I'm going to run it by you. I don't know if you, you think this is what people's standards evolve on. But basically, like, I've dated a lot. So the people I've seen who've dated a lot, the more experience they have, the less likely they are to settle down. And I think one of the reasons is we've dated a lot, especially if you've dated a, a wide variety of people, it's impossible to put all those people into one person because they're right. all so different. Right. And then so you're like, I kind of miss that or I kind of miss this, these conversations, water, sex or whatever, whatever it was, like there's different people, right? So it sounds like polyamory, they get, that's what they're trying to fulfill this ultimate dream. Yes. And it's not, you're right. It's not just the sex. The sexual variety is really fun for some of them, but for some others of them, it's, it is the conversation or the fun doing something or the specific adventurous kind of personality where someone else, the adventurous kind of personality would be too unstable to have children with and have on the mortgage, but they're really fun to go camping with. And then you want the stable person as the other co-parent of your children and on the mortgage and things like that. So it is a way to get all sorts of needs met. At the same time, looking for partners all the time can be very exciting for some people. Really love that feeling of constantly being kind of on the prowl, that that's really exciting. That same kind of prowling feeling can be exhausting for other people. They want to just choose a partner and be done with it. Right. So for many long-term polyamorous folks, once they have two or three partners they're not necessarily looking for more. They talk about it. Many of them use the same kind of metaphor that their dance card is filled. Once you've got three partners, adding more partners, how do you find the time for that? So three seems to be kind of a magic number of three really intensive partnerships. And then sometimes people will have lighter, more casual relationships as well. And some people have... 10, 12 partners. It's not necessarily just a, always a family oriented thing, but the folks that I were talking, I was talking to tended to be because I was studying families with children. These folks tended to be in much more serious relationships. And there does seem to be a maximum number of serious 
that people can sustain simply because of time is a limited quantity. They talk about love being, they can have this endless amount of love and love multiple partners, but there still remains just 24 hours in a day, no matter how much love you have. Yeah, and there's the quality of the relationship. If you try to split it down more, if you think about the modern lifestyle, a lot of people are already not, a lot of time not investing enough into their relationships in terms of intimacy, in terms of communication, things like this. And this is a lot where like we hear about marriages breaking down or relationships just breaking down. I think a lot of it's just like they get, they're getting stressed by their jobs. They're getting too much into their jobs and they come home and they don't feel like talking. So you can imagine if you've got another couple of those relationships and you're already not doing well with the first one. So I guess that's another big thing, like just for the guys at home, if, if you're not able to handle one relationship really well, then there's no way you should be trying to having a more polyamorous lifestyle, that's just probably going to get worse in terms of your life quality. Unless there is this category called the polysingle. And polysingles tend to organize their lives around other things besides a primary romantic partner. So they're not looking for a spouse-like kind of person. Uh They want to be in that secondary role where no one asks them what time they're going to be home from work. No one assumes that they'll go to the family Christmas dinner with them. That level of freedom is really important to them. So for people who don't have that yen to be in one really important committed relationship, you know, even if they're having other relationships, but aren't looking for that one primary partner, poly singleness can be a great option because you can have love and sex and affection and people to hang out with. And then you go home to your own place where you live by yourself, or maybe you even live with roommates or your sister or something, you know, but your life isn't organized around a primary partner as your main anchor. Those folks are doing all sorts of other things that might include love and sex and friendship, but they're not in a marriage-like relationship. And so just because you can't sustain a marriage-like relationship doesn't mean that polyamory won't work for you. Just be clear that if you're going to be a poly single, other people need to know that they shouldn't expect primary partnership things from you. You're not going to want to have a baby with them. You're not going to want to buy a house with them. You're not going to want to meet their parents necessarily. I mean, maybe you will after you've been together for years, but you're never going to be their wife or something or their husband, I guess, if most of your listeners are male. Yeah, (laughs) there we go. All right. Thank you for that. That sounds like more like a permanent dating lifestyle. It is. But sometimes dating the same people for years and years. Right. Yeah, so that's what I would call, like, I guess what I was doing, because obviously I wasn't living with anyone at the same time. And they all knew about each other. The other people you were dating knew. Yeah. So that could be poly single. That's poly single, and I didn't even know it. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's it's achievable. I still find it kind of tiring and complex. Yes. But I guess it's a level of independence. You can make uh, different boundaries. I know seeing people less once per week and stuff. I find most people want to see you more than once a week, and that's where it starts getting a bit complicated. But people have different relationships. I've had relationships where I've seen them once a month sometimes, and that's gone on for years and years. So I guess there's all sorts of shapes and sizes. Is that what you've seen? Yes, definitely. Poly folks, some of them see each other, see their partners every day. Some of them once a month really varies by partnership. Yeah. And they will often, if people have 
multiple significant partnerships, they will often end up spending time together. So a woman with both her husband and her boyfriend will go out for dinner and to the movies because there's just not enough time to see people, everyone individually all the time. They tend to do more things together, which is crucial that people know about each other and like each other if you're going to be going out for dinner and going to movies and things like that together. Yeah. But liking each other isn't always a given. Not (laughs) at all. Not even close. (laughs) Great. Are there other advantages uh, that people point out in particular? So for the parents, especially Mm -hmm. parents of young children talk about sleep like it's golden. I mean, when you've got one infant and four parents, then you're only awake all night, one night out of every four. Uh, (laughs) If you have a baby, yes, you get more. And you can rely on them. I guess that's one of those really tight polyamory developed ones you were talking about. Living together, yeah. Yeah. Because often people won't have babies together unless they're serious about each other. Occasionally there is the accidental pregnancy, and that can really throw a kink in the works. But for the most part, the poly people are so concerned about sexually transmitted infections and not getting or giving anybody anything that that kind of concern about not accidentally sharing bodily fluids also prevents unplanned pregnancy. So we we were just talking with someone about the Serena lifestyle and it was saying that the statistics on STIs are lower than the average because they're more conscious about it. You know, even though they've got a more active lifestyle. And even lower among polyamorists, I would say. And even even lower, better for polyamorists. Yeah, among the poly folks. And in fact, yeah. um, one of my colleagues in the U.S., Terry Conley, did a study that showed people in consensually non-monogamous relationships like swinging or polyamory have significantly lower rates of transmission of sexually transmitted infections than people who are cheating because if you're if right. you're cheating you can't you've been married for five years and suddenly you, you can't wear a condom no you come home and you say honey i think we should start using condoms honey's like wait a minute where what have you been doing that all of a sudden we need to use condoms so yeah yes sexually transmitted infections are a big thing in the poly community that people are very aware of not that no one has them but people get tested they communicate about it, they use safer sex protocols, and then they get tested again. They're very focused on testing. Cool. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting statistic, and it's, uh, it's really against what people think. But people don't think about the mainstream situation is not to be able to talk about this. And the situation you're talking about, where it's like, if I've cheated, I can't like use a condom right. anyway. And-, and the talking about it is another one of the advantages that poly folks talk about, is that when you have to talk to groups of people about your feelings and kind of negotiate your boundaries with groups of people. It really makes you think about yourself. It's a, it's an element of personal growth or self reflection that you can't remain in denial about things. For instance, when you're in a four person relationship and all three of the other people are saying, You get really defensive sometimes when people try to tell you something about yourself. You know, like if people criticize you, you get really defensive and you're like, no, I don't. You know, you're like, oh, I guess maybe I do. Yeah, that's actually a very interesting bonus I never thought of. I guess when we're one on one, it's me versus you and whoever the strongest or whatever is got strongest mind. A lot of people are just going to like say I'm like this. Right. It's not. But when you have three people, four people, it's a completely different dynamic. Absolutely. 
So you learn more things about yourself, the polyamorous say. You gain communication skills and negotiation skills. You also learn what you really want, because if you don't tell the other people in the relationship what you want, then you are absolutely not going to get it because other people are going to say what they want. And if you just go along with it, then, you know, over time, people, especially the women I've interviewed, say that it's helped them think about what they want and ask for it. So, for instance, dealing with jealousy is a popular issue that comes up. And if people get jealous, then thinking through why they're jealous and what to do about it is often a personal growth exercise for them, facing the jealousy. Right. Whereas maybe they haven't come across that as much. Although, like, you know, I think in a lot of monogamous situations, jealousy is probably going to come up at some time, but it's obviously going to come up. A lot more intensely when you've actually got a polyamory situation going. You might have to talk about it a lot sooner as well. Definitely. Definitely. Um, so the variety of lovers also makes people kind of explore new parts of themselves too. That goes back to the meeting multiple needs. Also, multiple partners kind of bring out new elements of people that they didn't realize were in there, which can also be a disadvantage, ironically, if the new thing people encounter in themselves ends up not working well in their other or more long-established relationship. Sometimes polyamory can break people up, can end a relationship. In terms of advantages for the children, children in this study really surprised me with their advantages and their disadvantages. The advantage they pointed to most often was being able to get a ride wherever they wanted. With multiple adults, there was always someone to pick them up from the movies or take them to their friend's house or something like that. And so I did anticipate being able to rely on adults as an advantage that kids could find. But this focus on rides and the kind of freedom they gained from multiple adults, not only to get rides, but also to get advice and help on homework was a big one. In terms of the disadvantages, I thought kids would say the biggest disadvantage was that they would get close to their parents' partners. And then when the parents broke up with those people, they would go away and the kids would miss them. I definitely anticipated that being the primary disadvantage. And actually, while they did mention that, it was way down on the list. The biggest disadvantage the kids spoke of universally was too much supervision. They couldn't get away with anything. <laughs> all those parents, all those adults around noticing what they're doing and where they are made it very difficult for kids to sneak out or lie. Because if you tell a lie to one parent, the parent and the parents are communicating and there's four of them, then you've got to remember exactly what you said to that one parent and say the same thing to all the other parents. And little kids can't keep a lie together that well. So kids definitely found that as a disadvantage. It sounds like the kids thought that was a disadvantage, but it sounds like an advantage in terms of they might just ditch the lies and stop being more confident and straightforward earlier on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the parents found it an advantage, all this supervision, right. because they were able to both have free time, personal time themselves, and then 
have well-supervised children. They didn't have to choose between taking time for themselves to go exercise or sleep or hang out with a friend or something and having their child cared for. They could have someone caring for their child and still have free time to go exercise or whatever they wanted to do. Yeah, excellent. I I certainly remember having to rely on my kids when I was a teenager on rides and it was a real pain Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. because you couldn't you can't just walk across the other side of town if you want to do something so it's funny that I come up so how about disadvantages is it all rosy or definitely not all rosy the complexity and having to put so much effort into maintaining and scheduling and negotiating and talking about emotions and processing jealousy. And it's a very high maintenance relationship style for most people. Some people, the the vast minority of people, I would say, talk about it as if it's kind of fairly effortless for them. It just flows with the, and those are the people I think are really polyamorous bisexual orientation. And the complexity doesn't seem to bother them, doesn't seem like a chore. It feels right to them to be in this kind of constant group puppy pile almost. For other people, balancing multiple lovers' needs at the same time can sometimes feel like a burden. Not having enough time for other things, not enough time alone. A lot of people talk about that secondary position of feeling emotionally invested in a relationship that then someone else has control over. They fall in love with someone, but that other person's spouse doesn't like them. So they try to put limits on how much time they can spend together or what kinds of things they can do together. And that feels very difficult for them. Sounds like politics. Very political, very political. And the person caught between two lovers who don't like each other, that is a terrible position to be in. Frequently, people mention that as one of the disadvantages, trying to keep everyone happy. Poly people, while it's not a big disadvantage being discriminated against in general public, because people, I think, don't think about polyamory when they see like a woman with her husband and her boyfriend at a restaurant. They don't necessarily think that's a woman with her husband and her boyfriend. They think that's a couple with their brother or their friend, or that's her employee or, you know, something it's not poly triad is not the first thought that comes to people's minds. So in kind of average life, poly people can fly under the radar and aren't that noticeable. But when they do get noticed, when they bring multiple partners to an event at work or the landlord realizes that they have multiple partners living there, they can experience significant familial and legal discrimination. It's legal in the United States to fire people or evict them from housing or take their children away if the state feels concerned enough that the home setting is not good for the kids, then their children will get taken away. And that's happened here already in the States. Not a lot, And it takes someone else kind of noticing the polyamorous family and making a problem around it for the state. But if that does happen, if Child Protective Services, for instance, comes in and takes the kid and the parents have to go to court to try to get them back, then it looks bad. Polyamory looks bad legally in court. 
So that is that only where there's some kind of other issue, like the kids aren't being looked after or, or something like that, and then polyamorous being in a polyamorous crowd doesn't help your case, or is it the whole case is based on polyamorous? It happens in both instances. Sometimes in one instance, a kid ran away, and that's what got the state's attention because he was a runaway, and then they came in and were like, why is your kid running away? Oh, he's unhappy with the home because... And he said it was because of polyamory. It actually ended up that he was feeling bad himself. He had gotten this girl pregnant and wasn't telling anybody. And then he ran away because it was too much kind of emotional angst in his life. But then he blamed it on the poly family because that was kind of a more convenient excuse. So, yes, in that case, it was something else that brought the authorities' attention, and then the polyamory became a big deal. In other cases, sometimes it is just the polyamory itself. Um, one of the most famous cases, April Divil Bliss, was in Time magazine, and this was in the 90s that her kid was taken away. But her ex-mother-in-law saw her on a television program talking about being in a polyamorous triad with these two men, neither of whom were the father of her child. And so her ex-mother-in-law sued for custody on behalf of her ex-husband, who actually happened to be in jail for armed robbery, but he got custody of the kid because somehow being an armed felon is less egregious than being in a polyamorous relationship. So Right. Is this, I mean, we're 25 years on now. Is that still a scenario that could come up? It's just something legally you should be aware of if you're going to have kids. And- Absolutely. And if you have any kind of issue where your parents or your ex's parents or your ex or your whoever would try to sue for custody, then don't go on television talking about polyamory. <laughs> right. It's not a neat, yeah, something you want to publicize a lot. No, but unless you aren't kind of in a fragile position like that, if you are strong in your position and you know that no one can attack you, then it can be very important to come out as polyamorous because the more people who come out, the less stigma and the less discrimination will happen. We've definitely seen that with gay people, that more and more gay people coming out has meant serious political change. And I think the same thing will probably happen with polyamory, but it's just not as safe to come out right now. There are smaller numbers as well. Smaller numbers, definitely. And directly riding the coattails of all the political liberation that the gay people worked so hard for. Yeah, they were pretty active. I, I can't see the polyamory crowds coming out. In mass, they don't like. There's not as much stigma. There's not many as many problems. So they haven't got as much motivation to kind of lobby for change and, and things like this. Agreed. Yeah, different different situation. I thank God it's not as bad. Yes. Um. So, are there any dating strategies or relationship strategies that you've seen in polyamory which you think would be applicable to other relationships and could be beneficial? Oh, absolutely. For one thing. Use honesty and communication to negotiate the kind of relationship you want. If there's one thing that polyamorists show us, it's that you can negotiate any kind of relationship you want. As long as the other person is consenting to it, then 
you can have a non-monogamous relationship or a monogamous relationship or a dominant submissive relationship, whatever you want. Just be Or a less committed relationship. Absolutely. Actually, this is something that we get a question from a lot of guys in their 20s because they're not ready to get into a serious relationship. Uh, and they just want to date and they're worried about hurting women or upsetting them. Or they're just worried about telling her they think she's going to run away if, if he says he's not interested in commitment. We've been doing this for a while. We said, no, actually, it's pretty straightforward. You tell them like it is and it's pretty straightforward. And it sounds like in, in a polyamory crowd, right, that's something that they've got good at as well. You can basically say what you want to say. Like right. my life right now, it's not you just tell them really honestly, straightforwardly, and it doesn't become such a big issue. Absolutely. And Sometimes other people are, you know, if you don't want a commitment, sometimes other people are not going to want to date you. But that's good because those are the kinds of people you don't want to date right then. Maybe 15, 20 years, whatever you want a commitment, who knows? But the honesty actually keeps you from hurting other people because then they know what to expect from you. And that makes a huge difference. It also reduces kind of dramatic burden or conflict, conflictual burden, whatever you want, to, you want to call it. And I think that's just talking from the guy's perspective a lot of the time. They, they kind of get upset when the girls get upset. So it avoids all of that. Basically, the ones who are going to get upset, some people are always going to get upset because they want commitment. And if you're somewhere else, then it's never going to work out. And you can just avoid all of that hassle being straightforward. Okay, that's a good one. Are there any others? Yes, I would say do things to keep yourself interesting. Don't just rely on a romantic partnership to be everything for you. Have your own, not only friends, but hobbies and interests. Do some volunteer work. Do something so you're not just this kind of aching need to be filled by other people. Have interesting things about yourself so that you are invested in your own life because those interesting things, not only is it a good way to meet people doing volunteer work or getting involved in the community, but it makes you more appealing to other people when you have those interesting, exciting things about yourself. One of my respondents said that in her first marriage that was monogamous, she like, she got married and then that was kind of it. Like both of them stopped. They had gotten married and so they didn't feel like they needed to be interesting or attractive or any of those things anymore. Like they were married, so they were done. Then when they divorced, she started these hobbies. She lost all sorts of weight. She got involved in things. And she was like, why wasn't I doing this from the beginning? I could have been a person that my husband was interested in from the beginning. And it took the divorce to get her out of this rut to then be more interesting again. So now, even though she has multiple partnerships, she still focuses on what is she going to do for herself, not only to be interesting to other people, but to be, to have a more well-rounded life in general. So I would say the honesty, communication, and self-investment are translate across all sorts of relationships. Also, being willing to negotiate outside of kind of conventional relationship boundaries. I see that a lot in polyamorous families where they have just a lot more fluidity as to over the long haul, who earns money and who takes care of the kids. You know, when you've got multiple adults it doesn't always have to be a man earning money and a woman taking care of the kids. So it could be 
some mix of that. And in long-term polyamorous families, there's often kind of a rotating caretaker. You know, if you have four adults, then one adult's always home with the kid, but the other three are going to school, starting a small business, working for a large corporation, something like that. So that flexibility to not be stuck in socially prescribed roles can even if there are socially prescribed roles for people in monogamous relationships, they don't have to go with those. They can innovate something new, which is what the polyamorous do, because there is no socially prescribed role for how to deal with your husband's girlfriend or something. They've got to make that up. So it allows them then to make up all sorts of other things too. It gives them the freedom to kind of reinvent themselves and their roles and their interactions. And people in monogamous relationships can do that too. Yeah, absolutely. So people in monogamous relationships tend to, we tend to think it starts in a place and it has to kind of stay within that kind of same place, but the relationship is going to evolve. If you're going to change, the relationship can evolve too. And it's kind of like you've got to renegotiate that, just like you were saying that polyamorous have got used to and it's part of the way it works um we can definitely learn from that instead of trying to stay too attached to how things are or how they were the one last one of kind of the most major thing i would say for monogamists to learn from polyamorists is when the relationship is over it doesn't necessarily mean it's a failure it just means it worked for it worked however it worked for that period of time and now it's not working anymore so try something different and i think this feeling that in monogamous relationships if they end it's a failure it makes people hang in there until the bloody end when they have done all sorts of horrible things to each other they've done all these things to try to stay together and in some cases that's great. Do fight for the relationship. Do try to stay together. You know, try communication and honesty and self-revelation and counseling and all sorts of things. But once it's... Some of that can be good if, you know, if it spurs you to positively change, but there becomes a point where you have to accept that it's not going to work. And then once you've accepted that, as soon as that's clear, then in a kind and loving way change the relationship. You don't have to hold on until the very last moment when the only thing left to do is just eviscerate each other. You could actually stop sooner when you can still be nice before you've done terrible things to each other and say, okay, this isn't working for us anymore. This isn't a failure. We just need to do something different. I think that would actually make a huge difference for some monogamous relationships that to try to avoid the failure, do everything they can to stay together, including putting up with violence, putting up with a toxic relationship that is just not good for anyone in it. And better to stop long before that and move on to different things instead of forcing yourself to stay to the bitter end when it's really terrible for everyone concerned. Yeah. As you say, those people end up being your friends for a long time or exactly you know, or, or whatever, some other type of relationship down the road. When uh, you leave, when you can there. still look them in the eye instead of cheating on them and doing stealing their money, you know, whatever. People do horrible things in breakups. Leave before that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Ellie, thank you so much for all your tips today and your academic research notes. So 
how do people find you on the internet? Where are you active? Are you active on Twitter or or your website? Or where's the best place? I do have a website, elizabethchef.com, E-L-I-S-A-B-E-T-H-S-H-E-F-F.com. I also blog on Psychology Today. The name of my blog is the same as my first book, The Polyamorists Next Door. They can also find my second book coming out this fall, Stories from the Polycule. It's an edited anthology um, written by polyamorous people in polyamorous families. Thank you so much for those. We'll put all that in the show notes as well. A couple of quick questions. Besides yourself, are there other people you'd recommend? like you respect their advice or their research or anything in this area? Maria Pallotta Chiaroli in Australia has done some amazing research on bisexuality and linked from bisexuality into polyamory. Meg Barker in London, she's at the Open University in London, has done some great research on polyamory. Um, there's just not a lot of pol- of research on polyamory. Most of the books have been written by polyamorists themselves. Most of the books out there, yeah, well. are advice on how to do it. So the area, like the number of people studying uh, polyamory is quite few at the moment? S- small but growing. Yes, it is increasing. In 2005, I started an um, online research community called Poly Researchers. And wow, 10 years ago now, I think about that. Um, we grew from a group of like 15 or 20 people at first to now we have over 500 members. Wow. All talking about research on polyamory, how to do it, where to get the respondents, where to get funding, how to get IRB approval. That's great. Things like that. Yeah, it's really, it's exciting. Yeah, it sounds very cool. 500. Over wow. 500 I'm now. sure it's going to grow a lot faster now as well. And it's, they're from... All over the world. Is it? There's no one in China, right? Is there? No, anyone in China? no, not yeah, right now. So. Polyamory mostly happens in countries where women have access to their own money. In countries where women are more restricted, it tends to be polygyny or one man with multiple wives. That's the uh, model in China still. China and in the Middle East, in parts of Africa. Chinese businessmen tend to have mistresses. and Right. Um, but I was wondering in, in Japan, because I know there's a lot of individuality and independence economically there, but also the culture, I'm not sure it would fit with polyamory right now. Is there anyone researching that? Not so far in Japan. The, the most of the polyamory we see is in the U.S. and Canada, yeah. Western Europe, and Australia. A little bit in South America, just starting. There's one researcher in South America right now. But for the most part, it's Europe, North America, and Australia. Cool. Very cool. I guess there's a few in France. They got a reputation for that, too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Europe has some serious polyamorous. And Germany. Right. Very cool. What would be your top three tips to men to improve their relationships? If they were starting from zero, they, you know, they don't really know anything, haven't got a lot of experience. What would be the three things you would tell them to focus on? Don't forget the clitoris, I would say, is the very first thing. Do not forget that clitoris. And second thing, don't forget the clitoris. (laughs) No, so definitely remember the clitoris. Secondly, honesty is sexy. Being your real self, not a sham. Authenticity is appealing to women. They really like that. And cleaning is excellent foreplay. 
If you want a woman to have sex with you and the kitchen is a wreck, clean that kitchen first and she will be all over you. You won't even be able to put the dishes away before she's pulling your pants off. That's that's a funny thing. In relationships, these kind of things distract women. Oh, yes. Uh, Sex, it makes them kind of uncomfortable because they've got things in their head they feel they have to do. So if she's normally doing the kitchen or whatever it is. So if you can take those things off our mind, it might help. Absolutely. Cool. Thank you very much for those tips. And thank you for your time today. I really enjoyed the chat. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Take control of your dating life today. Take one idea or one insight from today's episode and apply it today. Don't wait. Do it today. That's all it takes to change your life. Step by step, episode by episode. Learn more about what I, Angel Donovan, and my team do at DatingSkillsReview.com. How we help men like you take control of their dating lives.